Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Amy. We both grew up with dads who drank too much. So we are both adult children of alcoholics. And we're here to talk about our experiences using honesty and some pretty dark humour. We'll be chatting to a variety of people affected by alcohol addiction. Our dads were both called Steve and they're both dead now, which means we can finally have the conversations we've wanted to. You had to go there already, didn't you? (laughs) We've had a lot of experiences between us and we are both really passionate about helping other people. So sit back, relax and join us with Sarah and Amy, Children of Alcoholics podcast. Um, Hi, everyone. Today we are talking to Sammy Kingston, who is on Instagram as Samantha underscore Kingston underscore. And Sammy is a champion for alcohol change. And she did a TED talk a little while ago um, about using VR to raise awareness of her experience around being a COA and her grief um, around the loss of her mum. Sammy, it is lovely to meet you on a screen. Big screen, my big face. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Sammy. Thank you so much for um, chatting to us and coming on. And I've seen so much of your work that you've done online, watched your TED Talk, which is amazing. Um, And and your film, your VR film. I think yours might have actually been one of the first... um, pieces of content that I came across especially for children of alcoholics so that's amazing yeah so it was gosh so yeah tell us about yourself tell us tell us um I know it's I've I have followed your story and I've seen a I think you did a mini documentary on was it ITV you did that yeah yeah the lovely Lorraine yes yeah um it was just um, amazing and it's great that you're speaking out and raising awareness um, it's definitely needed within society. Um, we were saying earlier on, there's one in five of us. And you you forget how common it is. You forget how much demand there is for this kind of, um, or these kind of conversations. So yeah, I'd love for you to share a little bit about your story and what led you to your advocacy work. Yeah, amazing. Well, first off, I just want to say you're both lovely and amazing. And this is an absolute pleasure to speak to you both. Thank you. (laughs) Um, And what you're doing is fantastic and is definitely needed. So thank you for doing this incredible podcast and uh, having, having little old me on. So this is, this is fabulous. Um, But yeah, I guess it's, I guess, yeah, going back, my story is, you know, very similar to a lot of COAs. Um, but I guess uh, everyone's got little bits that are slightly different. So I I lost my mum in 2018, and uh, she she had a long kind of um, I say alcohol dependency. I know there's a lot of stigma around wording, so I always say that because I feel like that that fits me. That's that's what I like to say. Um, but yeah, she drank for a very very long time. And yeah, unfortunately lost her life in 2018. So she had a liver disease. Um, and when she passed away, um, I actually hadn't seen her for 10 years. So I had gone through the motions of um, re- removing myself from the situation because I was, I was 18 when I stopped talking to her. So I was 28 when she died. 
And the reason I stopped talking to her was that I thought that was the best thing for my mental health. And in my head, I think as an 18 year old, I was like, right, if I stop talking to mum, she'll sort it out. She'll do it. She'll go away. She'll figure it out. Um, and kind of had this belief system for a very long time. And um, I've got I've got siblings as well. So I've got younger siblings. So a lot of it was around protecting them and keeping, you know, everything hunky-dory on the outside, you know, the proper poker face situation. Um, so when she did pass away, um, it was a horrible kick in the teeth because I thought, damn it, I, I should have done more, which I think we all go through that, don't we? We yeah, have yeah, that yeah. instant feeling of guilt. Um, and, uh, yeah, I had a phone call a couple of days before she passed and she was in Scotland, I was in Brighton, so I had to get up to the other end of the country and luckily, I did get there um, in time. Um, I kind of went in there all guns blazing, thinking, right, you're going to tell her off. And like, well, it's what have you done, silly woman kind of situation, but kind of just completely broke in, in the situation. I went, right, I'm going to have to be the strongest eldest sister. Let's, uh, let's do what I need to do. Um, and became, I was next of kin as well. So I had to do, deal with all of that. Um and seeing family that I hadn't seen in years because we, had, again, hadn't had contact with family. Um, and, yeah, so she passed. And in the weeks that followed, I think my – I went on this kind of crazy, um, weird little driven journey because I was so frustrated and so angry that it happened that I was like, right, how do I fix this yeah. in, like, on the other side? And – basically went down spirals on the internet as you do um looking at trying to find people like me trying to find any information I could um and I think it would have been she she passed in October and I think in November I found Nakoa and I was like damn it yeah <laughs> where have you been <laughs> Oh, Sammy, that's exactly what happened to me. Oh, I had never yes. heard of Nicoa at all. No. I didn't yeah. know there was a thing as a child of an alcoholic. And then within about three days of my dad dying, I'd found their Instagram account. Yeah. And exactly as you've just described it, where were where were you? Yeah. Why didn't yeah. I bother to find out before? Exactly. Um, but just you to ask a question, you, you got to see your mum before she died. Mm. And I didn't get to do that. I didn't, I mean, I was still in touch with my dad when he died, but I didn't get to see him kind of in that, you know, last bit. And I've always just wondered what that would have looked like for me, as in what would I have said? What would I, would I have been nice? Would I have demanded an apology? Would I have said the things I'd never said? Or would I have just, so I'm really fascinated. And if, entirely up to you yeah. but just what was that like yeah no more than happy to share um as I said I, I went in there all guns blazing because I was furious at her um and I was I had this kind of mentality that I mean I didn't know she was dying um I think that's probably a good point I wasn't 100% sure but it was very much a you need to get here and I was like okay I'll get there and I'll see what what the you know what it is because I kind of had it in my head that I was like, oh, maybe this is just something she's doing because she's trying to re 
kindle this relationship. Maybe she's just trying to get us back. Um, but yeah, I went in there all guns blazing. And it was the nurse that said before we went in, she was like, prepare yourself. And I was like, oh, like what for? Like I wasn't, in my head, I, I wasn't prepared to go and see a dying person. I was prepared to go and kick my mum up the, up the butt, to be honest, and go sort yourself out. Um, and walked in and she was, um, she was tiny, absolutely tiny. And she was never a big woman, but she was, she was teeny tiny. And she looked like she was almost drowning in this big hospital bed. And, uh, she had, you know, she obviously had, um, yeah, lots of issues going on, was plugged in and wasn't really there. But it was the moment I saw her and I went, okay, oh God, okay, this isn't what I expected. Um, and my, my siblings went first into the room. So I kind of gauged the room as I looked in and had to calm myself down and then went, okay, let's just do what we need to do. Um, and so that was quite a big, I had to really clip my brain off mm. and just go, this is, this is your mum. Let's, let's just, you know, um, you know, you, you know, I don't know if you've ever had it where you've had like, um, almost, uh, you've made up arguments in your head, yeah. what the conversation's going to be. And yeah. I was like, no, I'm ready for this. Come on. Yeah. Let's sort her out. And it, it was completely different. Um, but I did go in and I, <laughs> funnily enough, uh, she, when she saw me, her eyes went really big. And she was like, oh, God, she's here. Um, Because I'd been that person most of my life being like, you need to sort it out. Like, you've got kids, you've got family. Like, I was the one that had to be like, this is this is enough. So I think her seeing me was a bit like, "Okay, she's here. Let's have a little conversation. And I think we probably only spoke for 10 minutes, I think. And it wasn't a lot of she didn't say much obviously because she had a, a lot of drugs in the system they're just trying to keep her comfy um and then I think I came I came out of that room and she was being moved to a different room and almost probably my whole body felt like it was going to collapse yeah because I just had no idea oh okay I've, I've got one vision and this is completely different I what I will say is that my dad was great in that situation because when I came out of the room and I, I walked into the waiting room, I think he knew he's like, Oh, like, cause you, I think especially being the eldest sibling, you kind of have this feeling of right. Well, I have to keep it together for everybody because if I break, everyone breaks. And my dad just said, just forgive it. Just forgive her. And I was like, Oh, that's, that's huge. He went, just forgive it. He's like, if you don't do it now, you're never going to, you're never going to do it. And I was like, Oh, I don't. And I just was like, oh, okay, I'll let go in this moment and just we'll deal with it afterwards. And then let's just be here. And that's kind of how it went. Um, and I think that was incredibly powerful because I just, yeah, I was ready to kick her in the butt. Um, that permission must that permission <laughs> must have been really game changing for you for somebody to just mm-hmm. say that. And equally, probably for your mum in that position, for you to forgive it in that moment, you know, she wasn't sure what the reaction would be. And for you to turn up and let it go, you know, I'd really like to think that was an incredibly powerful moment for her as well. Yeah. And I I, I do, and it's, it's funny, it's the, 
you know, I was there for about 24 hours. And when I went back in the room, she wasn't conscious or anything. But it's, it, it was a bit like we'd had this kind of weird mutual agreement yeah. that everything's fine. And we're just here for you. And we're just going to let you do what you need to do. And you can slide into the next zone wherever you're going. But you it doesn't matter because we're all there. You don't ever expect it's going to happen. I think you know, you kind of know the dangers. And I mean, I don't know what it was like for you, but I always felt like, or it was always ingrained in me that I was being dramatic and that if my dad wanted to stop, he could stop. And he wasn't, he didn't identify as an alcoholic. Um, so I always felt like, okay, am I, am I being dramatic? Am I, do I have a point here? Um, so you always self, self, I always used to self doubt and second guess. Um, and I remember seeing my dad three days before he died and he was in a bad way and I begged him to go to hospital and he was laying in bed, curled up, shaking. And I said, dad, I think you have liver disease. He shouted at me, told me, and he, he regained that parental control in that moment. And it was almost like, okay, he shouted at me. He really means, he really means this. Um, and I said, I'm calling an ambulance. And he said, if you do that, then I will not get in and swore at me. Mm -hmm. So I walked away and said, well, I can't watch you do this to yourself. Um, yeah. And then three days later, I got a call from my sister to say that dad was in a bad way. Even though I knew that he was in a bad way, I didn't think he'd die. So yeah. even when we yeah. was like in the hospital, we were moved from A&E to majors to mm. resus they had us in resus at one point and they're showing us x-rays of his lungs which are filled with fluid and it's still not computing or processing that he could die I'm just thinking yeah. this is going to really give him a kick up the bum and he's going to really come out of this and he's going to be a changed man and it'll be the moment he almost died and we're going to live happily ever after um, mm -hmm. and then he was moved to a ward and then he was moved to intensive care where he was on dialysis and then they had that conversation with us and we had a surgeon say to us, um, your dad's got a 15% chance of surviving. That's if he survives um, being put onto a life support machine. So yeah. my last conversation with my dad was when he was unconscious. And yeah. I really resonate with what you've said because in that moment I had that conversation with him where I told him it was okay and that I forgave him and that I said, oh um we'll be okay like it's not your fault um mm -hmm. I understand all of that stuff and it was in that moment I kind of felt okay I could go either direction now because I was already crippled with anxiety and guilt and shame and all kinds of emotions yeah. that come with it um so I mean how did you feel because I mean I I struggled with guilt and part of me wonders whether the advocacy that I do is maybe down to feeling really guilty that I didn't do enough when he was alive do you feel any like do you how how do you feel and associate with that or do you have any guilt you might not have any guilt because you should we shouldn't really we shouldn't have guilt we've tried protecting ourselves and we've done what we thought was right and what we knew what was best so yeah how did you manage that I I think I beat myself up a lot when she did die, um, I oh, yeah, I felt incredibly guilty because, and I almost, I almost felt selfish because I had spent ten years running away from her, and although I knew, like I know now, that was good for me 
because I needed to, I needed to sort myself out. I needed to, this is going to sound horrible, but I needed to have a life. Yeah. And I needed to go to uni and I needed to, I needed to break away because most of my teen years were spent looking after her or like trying to find help and trying to figure out how I navigate her out of it. I actually think Um, you were very brave. I think it was a really brave thing to do because you put your, you put yourself first. Yeah. In a situation that you didn't have any control over. No. So it was. I'll admit she hated me for it. And she told me she hated me for it. And it's not, it's not, not a nice thing to hear from a parent. And it's never nice to hear from any parent, like they don't like what you're doing or, you know, anything like that. But I think, I had almost hit my breaking point Mm -hmm. at 18 to go, there's physically nothing. I, you know, at that point, I, I knew nothing else I could do to to swing this back around the other way. Um, So I'd always thought, well, what if I, you know, if I, if I take myself out of the situation, then maybe it will change everything. Um, And I, I heard from her a couple of times in those 10 years, but a lot of it was, you know, wasn't very nice conversations because she felt that I'd taken a side of everybody else. But in fact, I was trying to convince her, no, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for you because you need to sort yourself out. And I was like, at the end of the day, if you don't want the help, then nothing's going to change. You know, they always say that, don't you? You know, you can't, I mean, I, I spoke to GPs. I went to doctors. Like I, I remember having this conversation with my GP actually, which was, incredibly frustrating because I must have been 16 and was like my mum needs help like I I feel like you're the only person I can come to to talk to because like college don't really have any guidance they're just like would you like therapy and I'm like no I'd like help I'd like a conversation um not it's not me it's I'm, I'm trying to help someone and I spoke to my GP and just said hey look you know this is probably drastic, but how do you get someone sectioned? Um, you know, or how do you put someone in a position where they're going to get, you know, put them in rehab? I don't know. And she turned around and basically was like, Oh, well, look, I don't believe you. She hasn't got a drinking problem. And I was like, she does. She definitely does, but I need you to hear me. And she was like, well, until she comes to me, there's nothing I can do. Oh, I heard that. Such a tough lesson though, isn't it? And we know that it's true. We know that somebody yeah. in an active addiction is unable to get better unless they choose to engage with it and lots of people don't get to that place. But it just goes against every fibre of your being because it's with any other illness, somebody would probably be wanting to get better. Yeah. So if you're diagnosed with an illness, the first question is, well, what are we going to do about that? Mm-hmm. How can I stop that illness or how can I slow down that progression of that illness? Or what can I do to make me as well as I can be? Whereas an addiction is almost the complete reverse where often that isn't the path that's going to take, but there's so many unknowns, you know, and with some illnesses and their diagnosis there's a time frame and there's a kind of a proven route of what that's going to look like for both the patient and for their loved ones whereas with an addiction there is no time frame there are there are so many variables there are so many ways that this can go 
and that's really stressful. So I fully applaud anybody who makes the decision to kind of protect themselves and other people by stepping away. Um, and I think actually that's an incredibly brave decision to make. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think I always liken when you, when you love somebody addicted to alcohol, I'm trying to explain the frustration of the lack of control that comes with it. And the best, like the best analogy that I can give is imagine watching somebody you love drown mm -hmm. and you can't get in and pull them out. And everyone's saying, well, no, you, you can't pull them out unless they swim. And that is literally, yeah. <laughs> that is literally what it's yeah. like. And, and I, God, that frustration, like, and you were 16, I was 27 when my dad died and I was, 27 when I had that level of frustration well I mean don't get me wrong I had frustration before that but when I got to the point of oh my god I need to section him I need to do this I need to do that what can I do that's drastic to get him the help all the time I'm being made to feel as though I'm dramatizing something or being dramatic mm. um and I rung so many helplines called his GP um and everybody said oh, we can't do anything unless your dad picks up the phone. But my dad couldn't pick his head up off the sofa. Yeah, so, exactly. And I thought, what on earth do I do? You were 16 in that situation. That's, and I look at that and I think, you're that was six years older than my eldest daughter now. That is yeah. no age to be making that decision yeah. or to have that kind of responsibility yeah. on your shoulders. So to get away like you did, at 18 I I think that's incredibly brave and a really responsible decision to have made it's a it's a really weird one because I think I'm, I've mentioned this to you before so but I when my mum did die I had therapy for two years because I again was like oh everything's gone a bit hiccupy and I said to my therapist I was like you know I've spent you know 10 years running away from this fact this thing that's happened and I'm trying to sort myself out and she, she was saying how she was like, even though you're running away, you were working towards like almost living a life for your mum. And she was like, you're doing everything that you wanted your mum to do, but you're doing it in a weird sort of way for her, which I never knew at the time. I didn't really align with it. But I always had this thing about, oh, I want her to be proud or I want her to be, feel like, oh, her daughter's doing a really great thing. I was like, anything I can do that's good is another thing that might actually help her stop. Yeah. It's a very weird analogy, but it was the first time my therapist said that. I went, oh, <laughs> I didn't know I was doing it. But it's, you know, all those, you know, those kind of things. And I mean, I, and I, I, I still to this day, I like we were talking about guilt before, I still do feel really guilty because there's points where I think, okay, maybe I could have just gone to Scotland and not, you know, beat your door down and go, right, come on, let's do this. Let's, let's talk as adults. Let's, let's try and figure this out together. But I don't know if it would have made a difference. And I think you do kind of go backwards in time and you go, oh, if I had said that, or if, oh, maybe I, oh, what if I just got her in the car and just, you know, driven her somewhere? Or what if I just taken her in and just gone, right, you're not going anywhere. Let's do, let's do AA together or, what do, you, what do you want to do? Like, let's have that conversation. And I know it's 16, 17, 18. I was so angry at her, but I was so scared of losing her mm -hmm. in this situation. 
you know, I was I was scared that someone was going to find out and knock the door down and go, oh, we'll take her away anyway because, you know, she's doing this, this, and this. Um, so it's yeah, it's a really, it's like a, it's two yeah. sides of the coins, isn't it? It's like glad I did it and glad I, you know, got myself a bit of an education and started a business and met a great partner, but also you do kind of get to the end of the line and go, damn it. I should have should have done more. I have yet to meet a COA who hasn't got any guild. Um, yeah, we're told not to. Yeah, but in truth, mm, you know, I, my husband doesn't have his parents anymore. Neither of them were in addiction, but he has guilt around things he should have said or visits he should have made, and I think that is just one of the complicated parts of a loss isn't it is that actually not only do you grieve the loss of the physical person it's the things you could have done or the things you should have said or the time you didn't pick up the phone or any of those things and you know for me my dad died during lockdown and a lot of my guilt is around the fact that I knew he wasn't well I could tell he wasn't well he was hiding a lot of what was going on and I chose to take the line of oh well you know we can't really come and visit because it's breaking the rules because that sort of absolved me of any guilt at that time because I was doing the right you know I was doing the right thing um and I feel hugely guilty about it yeah I I relate to a lot of that I often wonder whether I mean I've dealt I feel like I've dealt with my, actually, do you know what? I've had a lot of therapy for my guilt, especially mm-hmm. the three days before he died and wondering what would have happened if I would have called an ambulance. Um, and I it, t- it took a lot of therapy to deal with that guilt before I could start even processing the grief. And I often wonder whether I do what I do now because I feel like I didn't do enough when he was alive. So it's almost yeah. like, okay, so I'm going to advocate I'm going to advocate against stigmas and I'm going to um, raise awareness and I'm going to do a lot of work for Nakoa um, and I'm going to be that voice. And then I think to myself, am I doing that because I feel guilty? A part of me is like, yeah, I am doing that because I feel guilty because I didn't do enough. Um, And does a part of me get angry that I feel like I have to do this? Yeah, definitely. There are times where I think... I don't want to be doing this. There's other stuff that I wanted to be doing, but I feel such a huge responsibility to do this. And that's what I found really interesting. When like when we had a chat, you said about the difficulties that come with campaigning and the advocacy yeah. that you do. Um, because there's that, that, there's that real need and that, that real longing to want to do this, but it comes with its challenges. And I don't know about you, but I always feel one of the biggest challenges that I face in this line of work is alcohol addiction or alcohol dependency doesn't get compassion and empathy like other illnesses. Therefore, when you're campaigning against the stigmas attached to it and when you're trying to raise awareness, it's harder to get through to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. How, how, how do you find that? Yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's really tough. Because I, I feel very much the same. It's like I want to do as much as I physically and possibly can to make a difference. And that comes from probably a lot of guilt 
but also I desperately want to make a change. And I think we all feel that, don't we? That, you know, anything hard, you know, any trauma that a lot of people go through, it's like, okay, how can I fix this? Can't fix it, but we can make little changes here and there. And it's, there's two sides of it. It's an absolute pleasure to advocate Mm. and do what we can and incredibly brave to share these stories because we spent so long not telling them. Yeah. Because we're told that keep that quiet. Oh, don't, no, don't say that. Hush, 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 hush. Do you feel you know? like you're rebelling against a secret? You're like, yeah. you're rebelling against something. Exactly. Or, you know, it's a bit like, um, you know, the the picket fence idea of a family, isn't it? You know, you don't, you know, once that door's shut, you don't say what's going on behind it. Mm. Because that's just the way it is. You know, if there's family problems. We don't tell anyone. We just hush, hush. It's fine. Um, and yeah yeah and like I said it's been a pleasure but it is really difficult and I I never really understood what I was getting myself into when I started talking about it partly because I didn't know anyone else was in the same position as me um until I found Nakoa and I found COAs and I started following people on Instagram but I also didn't realize how much how many people would come to me then going, well, you're advocating. So you need to tell me what to do or you need to help me. And I think it's, it's amazing that people feel that they can reach out because that's what we needed in the first place. And, you know, cause if I'd seen, and I've said this before and I, I said it in my Ted talk, like if I saw someone when I was 16 going, my mom drinks, my dad drinks, this is what you could do. I would have, I would have, you know, lock them down. I would be like, what's your number? Let me call you. Like, what do I do? <laughs> but it's, it, it, it comes with its challenges in regards to yourself and your mental health and you as a person, because being able to stand on a stage and go, I'm a child of an alcoholic. Here's the information I have. This is what I've learned. Here you go. But then to go, okay, come talk to me. Mm. Let's have that conversation. All right. I'm taking on your story great i'm now becoming a sponge for everyone yeah. else's unfortunately their traumas and yeah, all these yeah. horrible things that people go through what do i do with that it's a lot isn't okay. it i mean i don't want to i don't i don't want to brag sammy but i've got 91 followers on instagram at the moment that's, that's, um i'm kind of a big that's deal damn good <laughs> <laughs> we've got a campaign going on at the moment called hashtag, hashtag following me <laughs> There we go. Hashtag follow Amy. Let's do this. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, <laughs> the I'm thing is, your experience and all of us are kind of trained with Nakoa and we do our things and we do what resonates with us. And we'll talk about your um, TED talk and your VR project in a second, but we own, we do the things that we are able to do. And the benefit of doing that on social media and things is that we do it at a time that suits us when we're able to, and we can take breaks away from that. However, that's really hard because when you do get a message and you know what someone is going through, it's really hard to ignore that but equally, you can only ever speak from your perspective and what has happened to you. 
And you probably don't, it's not a case of kind of top trumps of stories. And you're right, you have to absorb what someone is telling you and go back with empathy and with kindness and signpost them if you want to, to other places without sounding dismissive or disinterested. Because exactly that, when you've been through it, there's also that thing of do as you would be done by, what would I have wanted? So it's a really grey area between protecting yourself and then giving too much of yourself away. So when you did your talk and then your project, how has that been in terms of you choosing to do that and keeping your distance from it whilst using your experience? So when I made the film, I didn't protect myself at all um, and basically was willing to talk to everyone and anyone that kind of came my way. And at first I was quite, let's do this. Like, you know, this is what, this is exactly why I've gone down this path. I'm, I'm going to make this film. I'm going to make a difference. Um, you know, I'm going to open up this topic also to my industry because from the tech world, you know, most of my networking and was drinking. And I thought maybe this could be something else as well, but going to put everything on the plate and just, yeah, kind of break my heart open a bit and just give them everything. And so we did events. So we did like these, these events where we'd have like the headsets and we would obviously show people the film, but I knew that I needed to do it carefully and I knew it needed to be done very, very safely. So I reached out to Nakora and I said, look, give me all the resources you've got. Like, this is my way of, you know, anything anyone needs is they've got everything. Um, and so I would show people the film. We'd have that conversation a lot of people would either, it was, it was kind of 50-50. I'd have people that were like, yeah, that's a great film. Thank you for raising awareness. Didn't really affect me in any way, but thank you. Goodbye. And I was like, cool. Thanks for watching. Lovely. And then you get the other side where I'd have 15, 20 people wanting to sit and talk to me and tell them, tell me what was gone, what's happened to them. And then obviously ask for advice and t ask me what to do next. Um, and at first I was like, yep. Yeah, feed it, tell me everything. Let me, let me see what I can do. And I, and I spent a lot of time, you know, emailing charities, doing my own research online, trying to build like these fact sheets. I was like, anything I can do. But then I would come home afterwards and just feel like extremely exhausted by the whole process because at the time I hadn't processed my own grief. Mm. So I was still, bear in mind, my mum passed in October We'd finished the film in March of 2019, so like six months later. Wow. So I was still like thinking about mum and then going, right, okay, okay, you've had this horrific thing that's happened to you. Let me take you on. I'll I'll look after you. I will I will help you with every person that came to me. And it got to a point where I was just like almost I was so exhausted by the process that I was just like, why have I done this? Yeah. <laughs> why did I make this? Um and there have been points where I've had to, I think, actually, weirdly, the lockdown was helpful because it gave me a little bit more time to kind of stop and go, okay, well, I've made the film. It's now out in the universe. This is great. But I need to kind of rekindle my mental health a little bit here because I was still kind of going through what I was dealing with um, and so didn't, didn't protect myself at all. I mean, I was answering emails and messages on social media like over Christmas 
because people were, you know, it's hot. Christmas is awful. It's, it's one of the worst times for COAs. Um, and that's a lived experience. And I've, I've heard that from others. No, you're right. So it I is. just, yeah, it it's, is. it's the worst, isn't it? It's and I, not the most wonderful time of the year as it turns oh, out. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, but I was just, I felt like I need to be open to everyone and I don't want to ignore anyone. So my kind of, I put, I put Sammy on the back burner, let's say. And actually, I think it made my grief last, not that grief ever leaves you and ever kind of, you know, it stays, but it it felt like it was dragged longer mm. than it needed to be maybe in those first kind of that first year. Um, and I think I, I even had points where I had events booked in for showing the VR film and I had to cancel them like 20 minutes before because I couldn't, I couldn't mentally cope with it because I was like, I don't know what I'm going to walk into. Um, so moving forward from that, when I did like the Ted talk, I knew I was like, right, okay, I'm going to protect myself a lot more and I'll have people on site who are going to help me still give as much information as I can and be helpful, but also manage me and manage me as a person. And my partner, Bert, is fabulous, like absolutely amazing. And he, he understands how much it can trigger me. Um, but it's, you know, I'm still learning that yeah. process but it's important it's, it's so important and having that time away and just being yourself is is something you have to almost schedule in a little bit sometimes oh absolutely I mean I feel awful saying this um there are messages in my inbox that I haven't replied to because I haven't got the headspace or the capacity to sit down because I used to go through a stage with my messages where um I would get so many and I'd want to reply something heartfelt to each and every single person and it would yeah. drain me and I remember like at one point I was sat in a supermarket car park replying to messages from people that were literally pouring their hearts out to me and I wanted to reply to everyone and I was in there for like an hour and a half to two hours replying to people and I was so triggered after it. I was crying yeah. and in the end, like, don't get me wrong, I'll, I try as much as I can to reply but sometimes you read some of the stories that people say and it is just um, it's heartbreaking it really is heartbreaking and it takes you back to a space and it's overwhelming. Um, and I sometimes get questions like, I, I've had people ask me, what do you think I should do with my partner? Do you think I should leave them for the sake of my children? I can't answer that. No, that, no. I, That's not, I mean, I always used to think my poor mum was stuck between a rock and a hard place. Like if she would have left him, he would have probably died sooner and we would have probably resented my mum and she didn't leave him and we were stuck in a situation that we couldn't escape from. Um, so it was, you, she was damned if she did and damned if she didn't. Um, and when somebody asks you that, I'm like, I, I genuinely can't answer that question because it is such a difficult situation to be in. And the other one is and we all know this, is how can we help them if they don't want to stop drinking? And I've in the back of my mind, and I always say to my husband, I go, oh, somebody else has asked me, how can I help my loved one if they don't want to be helped? And I almost want to say to them, I'm really sorry you can't. Mm. 
Mm. How do you like? It's so, it's so horrible to be in that situation and to know that and understand you fit. And if you're an empath as well, and I'm, I can, I can tell you're an empath, and straight away you've got that keen willingness to just want to like scoop them up and help them. She's never called me an empath. It's because you make sick jokes. <laughs> I, I don't know about you two, but um, me and my siblings have got really like dark humour. Yes. When it comes to things like best. this. And it's actually the only way to get through a lot of things. It, so, it yeah, actually um, is. But quite bad. <laughs> yeah, you have to be. Tell, you... tell her what you said. Tell her what you said at the um, funeral home. No, it wasn't me. It was my brother. Oh, was it your brother? Yeah. So... When <laughs> little show monkey, you wheel out. It's really bad. She said it in our first pod, our first episode, and I looked and went, "Oh, we might need to edit that out." So when <laughs> we didn't, we didn't, we kept it in. When my brother and I were organising my dad's funeral, and they kind of go through, and it's weird because they always called him dad, not your dad, or not by his name. They always said, "And did dad." have any yeah weird yeah they do and did dad have any uh pacemakers or hip replacements or anything we need to know because we have to fill in a certificate before the cremation and my brother said no but he did drink a lot so you need to bear that in mind with the whole fire thing (laughs) and then obviously the pair of us are just kind of snorting and nobody (laughs) else knows what to do (laughs) I just, <laughs> because if you get it you get it yeah and if you don't you don't and there's nothing you can do about that I mean my dad died exactly one week before his 60th birthday and we're having this really deep conversation and she looked at me and she had like she literally her head was resting on her hand and she looked and she went did you get a refund for his present <laughs> that's just common sense. And actually, no, yeah, I, I was common sense, but yeah. I get it. <laughs> but you are right. I mean, I used to buy my dad alcohol for Christmas, so I hated everything about the fact he was in a really active addiction. I hated spending Christmas with my dad. I hated everything about it. I. He used to come and stay with us, even though I didn't want him to, because that was preferable to me feeling shit about myself all Christmas, knowing he was on his own. And my, I always likened it to, I wouldn't leave the old lady up the road on her own on Christmas Day, so why am I prepared to do it to my own dad? And I kind of took the view that it was easier to just have a really rubbish time but kind of do the right thing than not have him. So I used to know he would drive down. Would he turn up? Would he not turn up? Would he crash his car on the way? Would he kill someone? Just so stressful. And then I'd want him to arrive because I'd want to know he was safe. But then I also, my heart would sink when the car pulled into the drive. And then his mobility was really affected by his drinking towards the end of his life. So he'd sort of shuffle down the drive with his bag. And then you'd give me this overnight bag that I'd take up to my son's room and obviously I'd open it and all across the bottom of the bag he had uh, Evian bottles, like the 500ml bottles and they'd all been decanted with vodka and then it was a piece of cling film over the top of the bottle 
and then the lid screwed on so you didn't get any leaks. Yeah. So the whole bottom of this weekend bag, so probably four or five litres of vodka yeah. for maybe two nights and then all of his clothes on top and then he'd make this massive thing of... So, you know, I'd cook on Christmas Eve and there'd be a bottle of red wine on the table because really, what was the point? I wasn't going to have an argument. I wasn't going to have another argument about it. And then I'd sort of say, do you want a glass of wine? Oh, no. <laughs> I know there's five litres of vodka up there and I know that you want to drink this. Just like, just do it. Let's just get it done. And, um, and then... You'd sort of, you know, you'd go to bed and then I wouldn't sleep for the whole of Christmas because I'd be waiting for him to fall down the stairs or any of those things. And then on Christmas morning, he'd be, because he was sort of nocturnal, he'd drink all through the night and I'd hear the bottle lids hitting the floor. Christmas morning, I'd get up with the kids. He never saw my children open their presents and he'd sort of shuffle out kind of just before the roast and then I'd give him a bottle of red water, like a, you know, like a 30, 40 quid bottle of wine. And at that point, there's still five litres of supermarket vodka upstairs. Or, you know, he wasn't a connoisseur towards the end, but I'd make this big thing of buying this really expensive bottle of red wine and giving it to him just because it was easier. Mm. I used to pour my dad's down the sink. I never bothered. I just never bothered because... That would have acknowledged that I knew it was there, which would have caused an argument. And I just always thought, what's the point? He's he's going to do it whether I pour it down the sink or he doesn't pour it, you know, or I don't. He's going to find another way to do this. But that's the safer way of dealing with it. Because well, it's just a different... I don't think it's a better or what... It's just a different way of dealing with it. But with, with me, but what I mean by that is that alcohol withdrawal can be deadly. And my dad was physically dependent on it. And what I didn't realise at the time is every time I was pouring it down the sink, one, he would have just gotten more, and two, he needed it. Physic physical dependence on it. I'm pretty sure that's why he declined really quickly because he suddenly stopped drinking and his his organs just couldn't take it. But it's, um, but it's hard when someone sends you a message and you know what it's like or you've been through it or you really identify with it. It's really hard to not be triggered by it or to to remind yourself of some of your own situations you've lived through or the choices you've made. But equally, you can't advocate for a choice, for someone to make a choice. You can't tell somebody what to do. I no. chose the things I chose, rightly or wrongly, but I have to live with those. But they may not be the right choices for somebody else. And I would never feel confident to give any advice other than really factual kind of signposting you know, and I always talk about the Nakoa, the six C's. You know, firstly, for me, what I didn't know, I never thought I caused it, but the whole kind of curing and controlling thing, I thought I could control my dad's relationship with it. I thought eventually I would be able to help my dad get better. But I never communicated my feelings. But the choices that we've all made were choices to protect ourselves. And again, they'll be different for everybody. But I really wish I'd known. I really wish somebody had given me that sheet with the six C's on years ago. Yeah. Because actually what it would have done would be to say to me, it's like the things you're doing are okay for you. And nobody yeah. can judge the choices you're making. 
you know, so you choosing to not do a presentation 20 minutes before you were due to start, that's the right choice for you. And that's what you have to do to protect yourself. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, yeah, it's, I don't know how you both feel, but it's funny that the information or the most resources that we're really craving most people I have spoken to is when they, they found it afterwards. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's, it really boggles my mind a little bit because I thought I was looking for it when I was 16. Do you know what I mean? Like I thought I was looking in the right places and knowing that it wasn't that far to find, like, it, look, I was like five minutes on Google yeah. looking for it after she passed. And I was like, why? Did I not see it? Like I went to again, um, I, I went well, to an Al Anon meeting once mm-hmm. and I walked in and it was so overwhelming. Just this sea of faces, none of whom were my age. They were all sort of spouses, I think, really, of the person in addiction. And I just cried all the way through it and I never went back. And that was it, really. But I think for me, we've talked about this a lot before. I didn't know that a child of an alcoholic was a thing. I didn't know that my dad's illness had impacted or affected me in the way that I now know it had. So I didn't know I could, I didn't know I needed or would benefit from help. And I didn't know I could access help. And what I thought help looked like as somebody with an alcoholic parent, I thought help looked like making my dad better and I knew my dad didn't want to get better. So I didn't know that COA was a standalone thing aside from the ad, you know, the person in addiction. I thought we were so intertwined. And also because my dad didn't identify as an alcoholic, it I don't think I would have felt comfortable while he was alive mm. seeking help or even, you know, is that family secret thing. And it wasn't deliberately a secret. And I was in my 40s when my dad died. So I was perfectly capable of seeking help at that point. But I just was carrying on, you know, kind of head down, get through it. So maybe that's why. Yeah, it's, it, yeah, I think that's, that's a really good way of putting it, actually. Because I think you are, when you're when you're in it, it feels very different to afterwards when you go, right, okay, what is what is out there for those others that are in that similar lived experience. And yeah, I think, yeah, in that current, that current time you are going, okay, let's, let's help them stop or let's help them change. But actually you're not thinking about yourself as somebody that needs help or support. You're just, your focus is on them and what you can physically do in those moments. And we know that people are seeking help. We know that NACOA get 30,000 calls a year. That's brilliant. We know that their message yeah. boards are used. We know that people are engaging with them. And whilst we didn't do it, the stuff we're doing now is encouraging other people to do it. Exactly. And that's just, yeah, it's a wonderful thing, like knowing that that is there. Yeah. And it's, and you know, it's, and again, it's, it's just being able to openly talk and not be, and not feel guilty for sharing because, that is the thing that we've all been fighting against for so long is going, well, you can't talk about it. So no. It's suppressed as well. 
Yeah. And it's it's like all of a sudden someone's gone, you know, they've opened the lid and gone, it's cool. Let's have this, this chat. It's fine. Don't feel guilty about it. Like, you know, add a bit of dark humor if you have to. Yeah. Like, you know, what's, what is going to help us get through it? Well, and also um, just because you, you know, some people might not like the dark humor. I don't know who they are, but apparently <laughs> some people might not. But it, that's fine. It's not for you. And that's okay. Because there are exactly. other places where you'll get what you need. And, you know, you've got siblings and Sarah's got siblings and I've got a sibling. And I don't know about for you, but I know Sarah's sisters have dealt with it differently. My sibling doesn't feel the need to kind of start an Instagram account with, wait for it, 91 followers. Or, talk, you know, he, he deals with it in his way that's right for him. So I don't know what your experience has been around that. Yes, I, I was uh, very nervous when I started openly talking um, about it because my my siblings are all at different stages of life and have all got very different thoughts on it. And I wanted to respect them as much as possible. Um, and they know that a lot of the stuff I've done is for me and like, because I know it's completely but I quit alcohol and stuff and things like that. So I've, I've been sober since my mum died. Um, and I, I had the conversation with them about that just in itself and, they were like, oh, you know, why, why are you stopping drinking? And I was like, well, I can't put that in my body anymore. Mm. I can't, it, I, I view it as a poison and I can't, my mind just can't agree with it. And they were so respectful of that. And, you know, are always, you know, it's the big sister thing, but they're like, you know, include me in ways that they can. Um, you know, they'll always bring me non non-alcoholic stuff. You know, at Christmas they're like, Sam, what's Sammy drinking? Because we need to make sure that she feels included and she's got a nice thing to drink. I was like, I don't care, you know, it's water, iron brew, whatever. Um Iron Brew. But- I love Sammy. Scottish, aren't I? <laughs> I was going to say, is that the Scottish um, in you? What, the is, what is interesting is that all three of us are the oldest sibling. Yes. Yeah. I think there's a lot yeah. around that. And Definitely. the feeling of needing to make a change and make a difference and fix things. Yes. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Seriously, though, the, the iron brew, can we... <laughs> It gives you like the biggest sugar high. I'll tell you that. You need a little bit. I can't um, talk, Sammy. Do you know what I did the other day? I got up at five thirty in the morning to drive wow. to a petrol station to get my ten-year-old son some bottles of Prime that were due to be delivered oh, overnight. No. Oh, you did. There it. are You're many, many things one. around. Well, one, they hadn't had a delivery. Two, I essentially was just enabling somebody else's addiction in a different way. I turned like, on the drive. I was like, this isn't good. <laughs> oh, bless you. And three, oh. I went into a petrol station in pyjamas and a puffer jacket. Not my proudest. How <laughs> not? Honestly. You know, I don't see what I wear on, on Zoom. <laughs> oh, I hear you, though, with the whole drinking thing. I um, I... I'm I'm a mindful drinker. I can probably mm. count on one hand how many drinks I'll have in a year. Um, very mindful. Do not get the same effect. If I'm having a drink, it's because I want the taste of it and not the high. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't, I, I, I've just built up a resentment towards it. I'm, mm. I'm not anti-alcohol. Like, 
at the end of the day, if somebody decides they want to drink and they can take it or leave it, then that's absolutely fine. But it's it. I agree with you. It's it is a poison, and it's not been designed to be moderated. And I don't yeah. drink. I choose not to drink, and I haven't done for about two and a half years now. But that's more about my relationship with it than any thoughts of it sort of I don't really have any negative thoughts around it and I know that a lot of people can have what they consider a healthy relationship with it I just don't think I'm there so for me it is easier to remove that stressor from my life by not doing it than it is to try and you know and I have seen firsthand someone's attempts at trying to moderate or be mindful or get a handle on it and that didn't work so there's not really much in my experience that tells me that would work for me yeah um just changing the subject slightly sammy what's the name of your film uh, it's called anonymous anonymous yeah and so it's on i put it on youtube so people can watch it they don't have to put it in a headset anymore they can just do the 360 on youtube Right, which is uh, that's, nice and straightforward. Yeah, that sounds that's amazing. good. So I wore a VR headset once and then had to lay down for Makes several hours sick, and take a motion sickness tablet. So I am yeah. an old lady, Sammy. And a lot of people do ask me why. They're like, why did you do it in 360 or why did you do it in VR? And obviously part of it is because it's that's my industry and I've done yeah. VR for eight years. But actually... My biggest thing with it was that I almost wanted it to be like a fly on the wall situation because you can watch a film or you can see like um, something on the news, but most of the time you're not engaged with it. So, you know, if you see like an advertisement for um, like a, like a, a homeless charity or something, you go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah that's fine but it's not impact me in any way. Mm-hmm. But the great thing about that tech is you put it on and, you're, if you've got like noise cancelling headphones on, you're not hearing anything else and you feel you're physically in that space. And the way that I set that film up is very much like there's there's five of me. So you're it's like being sat in an AA meeting mm-hmm. and you're having to listen to me uh, talk at you in the different stages of grief um, and not having physical distractions like sound or your phone beeping makes s- such a powerful impact it doesn't have to be high quality because my film wasn't high quality or anything like that. Um, it's just, it's more being able to kind of completely zone you into something. Um, and people have said, they were like, gosh, yeah, that's, that's sat with me much longer than watching like an advert on telly or like watching a film. Um, and that's why I really liked playing with the tech because it's just something different. And I thought I already know how to do this stuff. I might as well kind of, bring two worlds together which and was really interesting it, it was amazing um I mean I I have I didn't get the opportunity to watch it with a VR headset but I did watch it um on YouTube and so you centered your TED talk around so it was processing your grief um and being the child and now, yeah T- tell yeah. us a little bit more about your TED talk and where people can find it so I was very shocked that they asked me I was very like whoa TED Talk, that's amazing. Do you I think, felt the same. I do you like, think oh, I need more a... than 91 followers, Sammy, to get asked? No, 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 no. Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. We can get you a TED Talk. I've got contacts. 
we'll get you there. Sammy Bear, you have to bear in mind, I tend to make a big deal out of this stuff. So I haven't mentioned it in this podcast, oh, but uh, God, we went to the Houses of Parliament recently. That's amazing. I know, I know. I don't <laughs> like to talk about it. Um, and the next day I made my husband make me some tea because, and I quote, I've got parliamentary business to deal with. <laughs> mm-hmm. I didn't. Tell yeah. her what you did with the The parliamentary pass. business I was alluding to was taking a photograph of the pass I'd stolen from the Houses of Parliament to put it on Instagram. <laughs> However, so these things do have a tendency... I can be a bit overdramatic. It's not my fault. Um, so maybe don't hook me up with one just yet. <laughs> we won't hear the end of it. <laughs> She's worried I'll go solo and leave her lagging behind. That's, that's what this is. You carry oh me. Dead weight. Dead weight, Sammy. Oh, oh my god! god. <laughs> you me up. So um, your TED talk and your film—they're kind of if somebody goes to your Instagram, they'd be able to find. Yeah, I've I've done that thing. I've done a link tree. <laughs> oh, I don't know how to do last, that. I'll do it for you. Don't minute, worry. It's on, my, it's on my Instagram. But to be fair, if you put my name into YouTube, I'm sure I would come up. Um, but it's it's TEDx Winchester, and they've got they've got playlists on there with all the stuff that happened. It was only last year, so it's quite. What's it um, called again? Um, so the actual. Let me get the full name because then people can actually Google it. Because um, I'm that kind of person that I don't know about you, but when you do something big, I block it out. Yeah, <laughs> my brain. I know, yeah, I don't like <laughs> to talk about stuff I've done, Sammy. I. Yeah. Um... <laughs> <laughs> So it's, it's, the, TED, the TEDx talk is called How I Use VR to Process My Grief. And then in the intro, I basically say that I'm a child of an alcoholic. So we, we but I basically cover sort of, yeah, why I made the film, what that was like and what that was like sharing it with people, but then also talking about being a child of an alcoholic and um, being a community champion. So What I loved um, most I think, about your talk was the times where you just had to kind of stop and catch your breath. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it just shows it's such a hard thing to say out loud. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, I think it's like 13 minutes, yeah. but like 14 minutes. And I think for me, it was the biggest pressure of, you know, you're not supposed to have anything in front of you. There's mm. no prompts. You've got to memorize this incredible script. And I'm, Weirdly, very grateful for the way the room was set up because there was a lot of bright lights and I couldn't see anyone. Uh, so, <laughs> so when I, when like... I did mine, I oh, didn't have I... an audience in front of me. So it was literally, oh. <laughs> there was no audience. I had to do it oh, straight okay. to camera because it was 2021. So we yeah. it was still kind of that like um, pandemic kind of vibe. Oh, yeah, probably. yeah. I've done when a TED I do talk. mine. When I do mine, <laughs> You're have an audience probably be like the O2 or something. Yes. So. Yes. Oh. Well, mine, mine was weird because it was back. I did mine back at my old university. Oh, wow. So I felt like I'd gone kind of full circle. Yeah. I was a bit like, oh, this is a bit creepy. I feel like I'm, um, because I didn't do very well at uni. So I was like, why do they want me back? <laughs> why do yeah, they want me back? But do, you know, do you know what, though? I mean, if you look back, look what you was dealing with when you mm. was at uni, yeah. and look yeah. look at what you're doing now. It's it's. Yeah. I mean, I I'm a big believer in. Sometimes it's not necessarily 
academia it's life experience I'm not saying that applies to everything and I'm not downplaying having a degree I have a degree do you have a degree nope (laughs) you don't need one I don't, no, don't need one. <laughs> I don't. I, I, did awful, I agree with you. I did awful with my degree, like really badly. And I've got like, several half degrees. Made a business and did other things instead. But yeah, I exactly. Need a degree for On, entrepreneur, and yeah, you're smashing it. Yeah. Um. So, Sammy, where can people find you on socials or your website? Um. So. And am I right a- in saying you are training to be a? Are you a? Right. Look. So. Sober coach. Sober coach. Right. Okay. Ah. Have you finished the qualification yet? Are you still in training? I get my grade on Monday. Oh, Thursday next week. Oh, let's say I've passed. So I hope I've passed. I'm sure you would have done. But it it, honestly, it was um, just a really cool experience just to learn a new skill set, and I don't know where it will go. But it's just it's just something else to kind of um, put my mind to and yeah learn how to be a coach. I thought my, it was really uh, interesting. My and I had that I had that opportunity throughout College Change. They were they were perfect. Like lined me up with it, so it was brilliant. So you're a That's community them. champion for our College Change, aren't you? Yes, yes. So um, they're they're really cool actually because they again they're not. Um, they're not anti-alcohol. Yeah. And that's kind of where I wanted to be sat. I wanted to kind of be in the middle and just, and also they do a lot of, they do a lot of research and you know, when you meet people and you feel like you've walked into the room and go, yeah. I like you people, you're nice. Yeah. Let's, let's work together. Um, so, and yeah, they've, they've been fantastic. And, you know, it's, I think it's interesting with all the charities and stuff, seeing what everyone does, but actually being outside the charities is an interesting side because I feel like you can get your voice heard a bit more and you can actually be like, Hey, look, I think we sh- this would be a cool idea. Or, you know, I've, I've heard from a few people that um, are like ex charity and have said it's quite hard to get things sort of signed off yes. when you're inside a charity. And I think, especially when it comes to COAs and around alcohol stigma or whatever area, it's important to have people with lived experiences being able to be in the room and, um, we don't always get it right, but it's one of those things that I think that's the most important bit is being able to be open and honest and like this, being yeah. able to have yeah. a chat. No, you're, no one's ever going to get it right because everybody has a different experience, yeah. which we've already touched exactly. on. But ultimately, through doing this, everybody is so, so passionate exactly. that actually everybody is getting more rights than they're getting wrong. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And actually... Nobody really knows what getting it right looks like because as long as you're encouraging somebody to seek help or normalising it or breaking a stigma, however you're doing that is fantastic. Yeah. Exactly. Almost it needs more people, doesn't it? I mean, I said to Nakoa the other day, like, more people need to be doing this. I mean, I don't know about you, Sammy, but I, I don't know how long we'll be doing this for. I don't know how much mm. I might get to a point where I think, oh, I've had enough of talking about this now mm. and I want to focus on doing something completely different. And But if I can do anything to help other people who want to advocate and campaign um, and how they can use social media, for instance, and I'm sure you'll probably want to do the same with social media or VR or public speaking, how people can do that to raise awareness and campaign. Um I find I've got a better headspace 
to help somebody yeah. in that area than to sit down and listen and advise on somebody's personal experiences if somebody comes to me and says oh I really want to campaign or I want to advocate what what do I do how did you start then I'm like yeah okay th- this is what you need to do do this do that um it's just an it it's still helping mm. rate like increase awareness and raise awareness um all the time you're not kind of putting yourself in that dark place yeah and- exactly it's just and having having that opportunity and being giving yourself those kind of moments of checkpoints of just being like, okay, I've done these amazing things, especially like even with this podcast, this is exactly what is needed in terms of having those brutally honest, but loving conversations. Um, and yeah, just being able to go, right. Okay. I've done this. I've done that. This is how I feel about it. Now I can kind of move on in different directions, depending on where you want to go. And that's fine because you've done exactly what you want to do and what you need to do that helps your head, your heart, your body, the people around you. Um, And that work will not be forgotten because it's already made a huge impact on, I mean, it's partly why I know you is because I know the stuff that you've done and I know exactly what Amy's done because of those 91 followers. Like it's, you know, (laughs) it's... Again, Sammy, don't embarrass me. (laughs) Don't let's talk about it. (laughs) Don't get us started. We'll start talking about Parliament in a minute. And we've... <laughs> this is the next podcast. So I would like to hear about all the Parliament stuff that you're doing. Drop me a DM, babe. I will. <laughs> You'll come straight through. There's only 91 people that can get in touch. So. Hashtag follow Amy. Yeah. I, made this, follow Amy. I made this real as a joke. And um, it was just basically just taking the mick. Out of B- bullying, some might say. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was this it was sad music in the background and all about Amy's journey. And at the end, it's hashtag follow Amy. She went, I'll oh, post that. When I can't post that, I'll get cancelled if I post that. <laughs> but it's actually, it's really oh, funny, isn't really it? <laughs> but, um, it? Oh, Sammy, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Really has. Yeah, I love the work that you're doing as well. Um, honestly, any all the text that I just love it. I find it fascinating. Um, obviously, I'm not very good with tech, as you gathered at the beginning <laughs> of this podcast. Um, for the sake of the listeners, it took half an hour to um, fix a technical problem. What I haven't told you is that Sammy had to get her other half to come and help us. So Sarah and... Sammy's other half and bless him it's his birthday today and he didn't want to be doing it I was actually sending her messages I was actually messaging her on Instagram going well this is awkward <laughs> listen miss I don't do tech and I put Snoop Dogg music to read like I made a really lovely reel Sammy about our podcast really powerful really meaningful I put some great music to it and I thought yeah this is going to really tug at the heartstrings don't you know what she did yeah. I she downloaded it and put Snoop Dogg music to no, it no, no. that suggests I did that what happened is I thought I was doing it right and then Snoop Dogg came on and I don't know how the two things combined I just knew that you'd be really angry and I didn't know what to do there was just this video of us as children us as children talking about I felt so alone and in the background you've got to I need to find this skill set no it doesn't exist I got to did you get rid of it because you told me off no I didn't tell you off I think you should have kept it I think what you said is WTF have you done (laughs) 
right. That's, my ineptitude is a whole other podcast or possibly a TED talk at some point. How to use dark humour. There is a TED talk in that. How to process grief yeah. with dark humour. I think so. Uh, I'd watch it. Sammy would watch, watch it. it. It's two people. There's two people that would watch exactly. it. Exactly. Should we do you a TED talk and put a sign at the background that says TEDx Amy? Yeah. Yes. 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 I'll set that up 100%. <laughs> Right. Oh, it's, it's been, been a, a pleasure. pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, Sammy, just uh, quickly, what's your Instagram handle? Oh, my Instagram handle is uh, underscore Sammy underscore Kingston. And then if you're into tech and VR and all that, you can follow me on Twitter, which is at K underscore Samantha one. Um, I have weird handles because Samantha Kingston is a very popular name. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> there's lots of you. There's only one Sammy Kingston. Yeah, <laughs> and she did a me. TED talk. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Oh. But thank you so much for having me. This has been an absolute pleasure, and you both are doing amazing work. So thank oh, you. Thank oh, you. Thank you. Um, listen, anything we can do to support or help, then yeah, just let us know. Um, and yeah, we'd love to get you back on. Hopefully, if this is still going for another season. <laughs> oh, I'd have gone viral by then. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, well, do you take care, Sammy? We'll see you soon. We'll Thanks. Yeah, see you very soon. Bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. You've been listening to Sarah and Amy, the children of Alcoholics Podcast. If any of the things we've been talking about resonates with you and you want further help, please contact Nakoa at www.nakoa.org.uk. There you will find a wealth of information, support, and advice. And remember, you are not alone.